Amen. Well, at this time, we will dismiss our kids to Kids Church. This morning, as we continue to walk through 2 Samuel, uh, we are going to be going to be looking at a, a section of Samuel uh, that's that's not fun uh, to talk about, and and I know it's becoming redundant. Uh, you guys are you know it seems like every week, okay, we're talking about you know murder, we're talking about rape, we're talking about incest, we're talking about a part of Second Samuel that's not fun to talk about, uh, and it. It is a bit redundant, but it is absolutely uh, the sinful heart and the sinful nature that is exposed here in the book of 2 Samuel. Uh, Chris, can you turn me down just a little bit? As we talk about uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at the, the theme of atonement because there's going to be a broken covenant that is atoned for, which is going to naturally lead us to the cross. And I want us this morning, I want to preface this message this morning by asking you to look at the cross, not in the way that you have traditionally looked upon the cross. I want us to look upon the cross this morning and look upon the cruelty and the gore, and the gruesomeness that is the cross, that is the nature of atonement. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up the book of 2 Samuel chapter 21. We're going to read verses 1 through 14. 2 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. <clears throat> now there was a famine in the days of David for three years. Year after year, and David sought the presence of the Lord, and the Lord said to him, It is for Saul and his bloody house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the sons of Israel, but were remnants of the Amorites. And the sons of Israel made a covenant with them, but Saul has sought to kill them in his zeal for the sons of Israel and Judah. Thus David said to the Gibeonites, What should I do for you? How can I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord. Then the Gibeonites said to him, We have no concern of silver or gold with Saul or his house, nor is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, I will do whatever you say. And so they said to the king, The man who consumed us and who planned to exterminate us from remaining within the border of Israel, let seven men from his sons be given to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah. And Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the oath of the Lord which was between them, between David and Saul's son Jonathan. So the king took two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of, the daughter of Aiah and Armoni, and Mephibosheth, whom she bore to Saul, and the five sons of Mirab, the daughter of Saul, whom she had borne to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, and Mahalathite, and gave them to the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them in the mountain before the Lord, that the seven of them should fall together. And they were put to death on the first days of the harvest, at the beginning of the barley harvest. And Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until it rained on them from the sky. 
She allowed neither birds of the sky to rest on them by day, nor beasts of the fields by night. And it was, when it was told to David that Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, the concubine of Saul, what she had done, then David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the open square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines struck down Saul at Gilboa. And he brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from there. And they gathered the bones with those who had been hanged, and they buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his sons, in the country of Benjamin and Zelah, in the grave of Kish, his father. And thus they did all that the king commanded. And after God was moved, afterward God was moved, moved by entreaty for the land. Let's pray. God, as we see this very gruesome act, men hanged and left in the public square, God, may your heart be evident to us that you have a heart for justice and righteousness. Lord, may your heart speak to our hearts and remind us. Remind us of your atonement for the consequences of sin. Pray you speak to our hearts through your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we read this text, let let me start by saying this is not chronological. We've just got done. We're walking through 2 Samuel. And this section of 2 Samuel takes a break from the chronological narrative and gives us a glimpse into the the heart that has taken place and the, the, the things that have taken place during the reign of David. Because we remember David was running from Absalom and then David, there was another revolution from Sheba and all these things. And David had quelled the revolution from Absalom and David had quelled the revolution from Sheba. And he was coming back to Israel to, uh, to reunite the kingdom. And it would be easy for us to say, well, you know, this clearly happened after the revolution of Sheba and after the revolution of Absalom. And so this is just one more evidence and one more example of the judgment of God falling upon David. But that's not what's taking place here. In fact, we, we, we have some, some chronological hints as to where this takes place in the narrative of, of the kingdom and the reign of David. But we know that it is not at the end of the, the, the cessation of these revolutions. So, so let me just, for a expositional, for the purposes of exposition, I want us to understand that this section, chapter 21, is not chronological, that this is kind of an aside. It would be like if, if you're watching a movie or you're reading a book and the author stops the, the, the sequence of events and backs up and says, oh yeah, by the way, this also took place. This is a very important piece of information that you need to know. And so that's what's going on. And so we have a famine. We have a famine in the, in the land. And a famine wasn't necessarily something that was unusual. If they, would have, uh, if they would have a drought, a season, or they would have a season or two where they didn't have rain, or a season or two where there would be pestilence, then a famine wouldn't be 
wouldn't be something that would necessarily say, well, the judgment of God is going to fall. But the scripture tells us that it was three consecutive years where they had no harvest. And so David said, okay, this isn't just, this isn't just the fact that, you know what, we had an unseasonably dry harvest time, or you know what, we had, we had a bunch of uh, pestilence and a bunch of beetles and a bunch of locusts that came in and destroyed the crops. Something's going on. This is, Three consecutive harvest seasons. And so David entreats the Lord. He says, he says, God, what's going on? My people are starving. My people are dying. What is happening? And the Lord speaks to David and says, because of the sin of Saul, because Saul has broken the covenant that, that Joshua made with the people of, of the Gibeonites, because of what Saul has done, I have exercised judgment on the people of Israel. And so I want us to understand the context of what's going on. So in order for us to understand the context of what's going on, I'm going to ask you to flip back to the book of Joshua, chapter 9. And I want you to see the covenant that the nation of Israel made with the people of the Gibeonites, made with the Gibeonites. Now I want to remind you who the Gibeonites are. The Gibeonites are people who are living in the land of Canaan. They are not Israelites. These are bad guys. Okay? They, if we remember the story, Joshua was entering into Jerusalem. I'm sorry, he was entering into Israel. And as he enters into Israel, God gives him very specific instructions. He said, drive out all of the inhabitants of Canaan because they worship foreign gods. And if they were to come into you, if they were to come into your families and marry into your households, then they would, they would influence you to also worship foreign gods. So it is in the best interest of you to drive out all of the inhabitants of the land. This is my commandment to you, Joshua. And so Joshua does that. He begins and he, 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 dry, he goes into Jericho and they destroy Jericho. He goes into Ai and they destroy Ai and they begin driving out the inhabitants of the promised land. And as they're driving out the inhabitants of the promised land, the Gibeonites say, hey, these guys are... You know, they're kicking butt and taking names. You know, we're, we're, we're the next in line. You know, they've already defeated Jericho. They're next, they, they, then they have defeated Ai. Now they're coming after us. We got to do something. And so they, they put on tattered clothes and they traveled to meet Joshua. And they said, Joshua, they said, we have heard of all that God has done in giving the Jericho into your hand and giving Ai into your hand. And we know that God has given all the inhabitants of Canaan into your hand. And so we want to ask that you would spare us. We are from a long way away, but we know that, that your God is faithful and your God is mighty. And we want you to spare us. We don't live in the land of Canaan. We live outside the land of Canaan. And if you will spare us, then we will be your allies. And Joshua said, if as long as you don't live in the land of Canaan, you know, we will make a covenant with you and we will not attack you if you will not attack us. And they said, that sounds like a great plan. Well, the Gibeonites leave and then Joshua realized, wait a second, they live just down the road. They live in the land of Canaan. They deceived us. They put on these old clothes, told us they traveled for days and weeks to come and establish this covenant with us. But because I have established a covenant in the name of the Lord, in the name of Yahweh, I will hold to my word. Joshua chapter 9. Joshua chapter 9. Beginning in verse 15. And Joshua made peace with them and he made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore an oath to them. And it came about the end of three days that they had made a covenant with them. They heard that they were neighbors 
and that they were living within their land. Then the sons of Israel set out and came to their cities. And on the third day, their cities were Gibeon and Caraphorah and Beeroth and Kiroth-Jerim. And the sons of Israel did not strike them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel and the whole congregation. But all of the leaders said to the whole congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Now we cannot touch them. Saul comes into power. And in his zeal for Israel, he says, I don't care what Joshua said. I don't care what the previous kings and generations have done. I don't care about the covenant that Joshua made with the Gibeonites. I am going to establish Israel in the promised land. And I am going to drive out and I am going to destroy the Gibeonites. And in his zeal for Israel, he broke the covenant that God had made with the Gibeonites. I believe that this is a warning for us in the church to be careful that in our zeal for righteousness, in our zeal for the church, in our zeal for for doing what's right, that we trample underfoot the very heart of the gospel. How much blood has been spilled? How much blood has been shed? How much blood has been, has, has been at the hand of or in the name of the church? In the name of doing what is right? I believe that in our zeal for the church, we oftentimes forget the spirit of the gospel. Do we not remember that it was Jesus who forsaked the religious elite to have dinner? With sinners? Do we not remember that it was Jesus who opposed the Pharisees and the Sadducees and those who were righteous that he might share a meal with prostitutes? Do we not remember that it was Christ himself who called Zacchaeus the chief tax collector? And said, I'm going to have dinner with you tonight. I'm coming to your house. Let us be careful, church, that we do not trample underfoot the spirit of the gospel in our zeal for the church. Don't get me wrong. We should be zealous for righteousness. We should be zealous for for that which, which upholds and lifts high the name of Jesus. But not at the detriment of the gospel. We should have righteous indignation against sin, but not at the detriment of the gospel. Remember what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. It is the love of Christ that compels us. It is the love of Jesus that compels us. Jesus, the, 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 Jesus told his disciples, he said, they will know you are my disciples. Not when you stand up for righteousness, not whenever you, you, you have these, these righteous crusades, but they will know you are my disciples when you love one another. And so oftentimes in the church and in our zeal for righteousness and in our zeal for doing what's right, we get caught up in legalism and we miss the very heart of the gospel, that we love one another. As we look back 
at 2 Samuel. I want us to see what the scripture tells us. 2 Samuel chapter 21. David says, okay, something's going on. My people are dying. There's a famine. And God tells him, well, Saul killed a bunch of people that he shouldn't have killed. And now you're suffering the consequences. Now your people are suffering the consequences. What's interesting is that God demonstrates his mercy to David by telling him the truth. Is it possible that, that sometimes we ask the Lord, but we don't want to know the truth? Truth is a manifestation of God's mercy. We serve a God who loves us enough to reveal to us and tell us the truth. I want us to see the nature of, of the covenant that God gives us. 2 Samuel chapter 21, God tells him, he says, King Saul, uh, if you look at chapter 21, uh, verse 2, it says, So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. I'm sorry, uh, verse 1. Uh, David entreated of the Lord, and the, uh, David saw the presence of the Lord, and the Lord said, It is for Saul and his bloody house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites, and he said, How do I make this right? I want us to understand that God is serious about the nature of covenant. God is serious about covenant. In fact, we understand because of the historical nature of covenant that all covenant in the Old Testament would have been sealed by blood. This is evidence in the Adamic covenant. This is evidence in the Noahic covenant. This is evidence in the Abrahamic covenant. This is evidence in covenant all throughout the Old Testament that all covenant was sealed with blood. What would happen, what would happen is the two parties who were engaging in covenant, who were engaging in an agreement that they would sacrifice an animal as a symbol that's saying this covenant is going to be sealed by blood. And as they, as they sacrificed the animal, they would, they would kill the animal. They would then separate the animal into two halves. And then they would pass between the two parties who were, in, who were entering into covenant. They would pass between the covenant and they would signify by saying, we are marking this covenant by blood. And if, if either one of us transgresses, if either one of us fails to live up to our covenant agreement, then, then our penalty, our payment should be our own life because we are sealing this covenant with blood. We engage in covenant today as well, but rarely do we engage in covenant with the same seriousness and with the same resolve that God engages in covenant. The most common covenant that we engage in today is marriage. And statistics tell us that half of those marriages, half of those covenants are dissolved. Legally. And yet, none of us pay for the dissolution of those covenants with our own blood, do we? There is a seriousness and a, a virtue and a gravity of covenant that we miss in 21st century America. We view covenant, we view the, the covenant of marriage like we view a, a lease agreement. 
We view the covenant of marriage, we view covenant like, like, like we view a purchase agreement on the house. And if, if, if so-and-so doesn't live up to their end of the agreement, well then, well then we're out. The house didn't pass termite inspection. I'm not buying that house. My husband lied to me. My, my wife, you know, spent too much money at the mall. My, 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 my wife, you know, disrespected me in front of her friends. My, my husband, you know, did this or did that. He, he violated the covenant. He violated our agreement and we, we begin looking for the exit ramp. God is serious about covenant. So much so that he was willing to, to expose his people, his chosen people, the apple of his eye, his covenant people, expose them to famine and death for three years. God is serious about covenant. And we've, we make it the butt of jokes. It's not convenient for us to be married anymore. It's not, it's not, can't tell you how many times I've, I've, I've sat in marriage counseling and, and a husband or wife comes and sits to me and they say, well, I'm not, I'm not happy anymore. You know, we've been married for you know, 23 years and you know, I'm just not happy. And as, as kindly and lovingly and, and compassionately as, as I can, I say, I don't care. God hasn't called you to be happy. He's called you to be married. Now, don't misunderstand me. Those two aren't mutually exclusive. There is such thing as happiness and joy within a covenant marriage. But there are going to be times whenever we enter into marriage and and we enter into covenant and it's difficult. If we look back through the scriptures and we see that Israel played the harlot and served other gods and gave themselves to other gods and made a golden calf and said, and, and worship this golden calf and said, this is the God who has brought us out of the land of Egypt. Do you think God was happy with that? I think God said, oh, they make me so happy. They fulfill me in such a grand way. God, that, that, that turned his stomach. That his covenant people, the people that he, had, that he had delivered, the people that he had provided for. Now, keep in mind... Keep in mind, they stood before before the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army was coming upon them and God split the Red Sea and God destroyed the army of Pharaoh. He said, I've done all this thing for you and as soon as you cross the the Red Sea, you're going to make a golden image and you're going to say, this is the God who delivered us? What a slap in the face. God said, well, I'm not happy with you anymore, so I'm going to go find someone else. No. And it's interesting all throughout Scripture, the word picture and the imagery that God gives us for the gospel is marriage. Christ is our bridegroom who gave himself for the church. And the church is the bride of Christ who adorns herself with righteousness and purity and beauty for the bridegroom. That's the image of the gospel. That's why marriage, I believe, is so important in our society. Mom, Dad, you want to show your children the gospel? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit yourself and serve your husband just as the church is obedient to the Lordship of Christ. God is serious about covenant. 
The nature of covenant is that it was sealed with blood. God honors His covenant. God keeps His word. And whenever God heard that, that whenever Saul trampled under feet the covenant of God, God communicated to David that He has desecrated my name because the covenant was made not by Joshua, but the covenant was made by the name of the Lord. And because you have done this evil in my sight, because you have, you have attached my name to a transgression and a, a, a forfeiture of covenant. Now I am the one, my character is being trampled underfoot. And God said, that's not acceptable because I keep my word. And if there was a covenant that was made in the name of Yahweh, if there was a covenant that was made in the name of God, we are going to keep it. And so he begins to inflict discipline on the people of Israel as an act of mercy, as an act of love. In fact, Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that God disciplines those whom he loves, that he reproves his children. Hebrews chapter 12. I don't want you to see that I'm not making this up. Teenagers, hear this. Your parents take your phones away because they love you. Teenagers, hear this. Your parents discipline you because they love you. Whenever your parents say, no, you can't go to that party or no, you can't go hang out with those people or no, you can't go. It's not because they're killjoys. It's because they love you and they want what's best for you. And believe it or not, they know what's best for you. Adults, God disciplines you because he loves you. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. God begins to discipline the people of Israel because they break his covenant. But I want us to see the reality of what takes place. So, the Gibeonites say, well, the people of Saul are the people who broke the covenant, so it's only fair that the sons of Saul suffer because of the actions of Saul. And so we want seven people from the lineage, seven people from the lineage of Saul to be hanged in the streets of of his hometown. And so David says, okay. And so he gathers seven sons and grandsons and great-grandsons of Saul, seven men from the lineage of Saul, And they hang them in the open streets. And as they're hanging there, I want us to to get a visual and a, and a, a vivid image of what's going on. Whenever they are hanged in the open streets, they are left there. The scripture says that they are left there from the days of the harvest until the rains came. Now, seasonally, the rains would probably come about three, three to four months after the harvest time. It's possible that these bodies hung in the public square for three to four months. Several years ago, my brother came to the house and uh, he said, Hey, before I leave, can I, can I get some, uh, some deer meat? 
I said, I said, yeah, sure. I said, go, you know, go out in the freezer and, you know, grab whatever you want. So he got three or four bags of, of deer meat and, you know, we put it in the, the back seat of the car and he got home, got to his house and, you know, he lives about 30 minutes away and loaded the kids, uh, went in the house. Uh, well, it was about June, about July. Uh, he, he shut the, the car. Uh, it was a weekend. He said, we didn't, you know, we, we went in the other vehicle the next day and, you know, didn't really think about it. Uh, two, three days went by. We opened the car next time we went to get in it. And he told me, he said, Preston, he said, it smelled like something you would not even imagine. He said, we had to sell the car. He said, we, 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 we brought it. We got the, got the carpet shampooed. We, we did everything we possibly could. And for months we would get in the car and just, it was, it was nasty rotting flesh rotting meat just baking in the back seat of this car and so now so now whenever he asked me for for fish or for meat i, I set a reminder on my phone so that in 30 minutes i call say justin take out the fish take out the meat from the back of the car he goes oh 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 i've already put a reminder in my phone as soon as i get to where i'm going i'm taking it out it, it, it's it's disgusting to 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 smell death. But I want us to understand the gruesomeness and the gore that these bodies hung in the public square and they became bloated and they began to rot there hanging. And I say this not to be crude, but for us to understand the gravity of atonement and the gore of atonement. We look at the cross and we we make it beautiful. We use it to decorate our churches. We put it on necklaces hanging around our neck. We wear earrings. But the cross is gruesome. It's an instrument of execution. Atonement is meant to be gory. Whenever God laid out the atonement for the Levites and for the priests, what He told them to do, He says, you're going to take a bull or a sheep or a lamb and you're going to slit its neck and you're going to take a basin and you're going to catch the blood. So we go to the grocery store and we buy our meat. It's all nice vacuum packed and they even give us little plastic bags to put it in so that we don't get any of the, any of the, the blood or any of the, the slimy stuff on our hands and, and, and it's, we, we keep our meat clean as best we can. But death, atonement was gory. He said, he said, slit its throat, catch its blood. And then skin the animal and, and burn the, the fat and the hide. And then cook the meat. And if you've ever butchered an animal, you know this is not a clean process. This is not a neat process. You're up to your elbows in, in blood and guts and gore. And it was intentional because God wanted to communicate and I believe that, that, that as these bodies hung there and as these priests and as these, as these worshipers butchered these animals, 
God was trying to communicate to them the, the gore and the gruesomeness of atonement. It tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, I'm sorry, in Hebrews, it tells us in Hebrews, it's here somewhere. It tells us in Hebrews that out, Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 that outside of the shedding of blood that there is no remission for sin. That was the cost of sin and God wanted us to see the aroma of sin. He wanted us to see the stench of sin that it is disgusting, it is putrid, that it is associated with death. And I believe that we, we, we make the cross beautiful and we lose the gore of atonement. But I want us to see the gore of atonement. Saul trampled the covenant of God, violated God's promise, violated and, and caused shame to the name of God. And God said, this is the cost of sin, death, rot. Destruction, bloodshed. This is the cost of sin. And I want us to see the grief of the mom. Her boys hung on that open square. And she grieves for months. Fighting away the buzzards and the ravens and the coyotes. And the varmints that would, that, that would come to eat the flesh of her children. Feel the grief of sin. I think too oftentimes we, we skim through these passages and, and, and we just gloss over them because we don't want to think about it. We don't want to read about it. But I believe that the author wants us to see the gore and the gruesomeness of sin. But I believe there's something even more powerful in this passage. It's found in verse 7. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, because of the oath which the Lord had made between them, between David and Saul's son Jonathan. I want us to see The covenant king protected the son of shame. We already have looked at the character and the person of Mephibosheth. His name literally means son of shame. He's lame. If there was anybody who deserved to die, it was Mephibosheth. If there was anyone who should have been the object of wrath, it was Mephibosheth. He was the direct descendant of Saul. The next in line to the king was Mephibosheth. He was lame. He was crippled. By by all accounts, he was the son of shame. He deserved to hang from those rafters. Yet the covenant king made a promise... And through the covenant king, the protection and the providence of God was demonstrated to the son of shame. I believe 
that in this passage where gore and gruesomeness and the atonement is made on full display, we see the power of the gospel here. As the covenant king says, you deserve to die. You have every reason to die for the death that, that your father and your grandfather have, have established that you have broken the covenant of God and you deserve to die. But the covenant king says, no. I'm going to take you into my house and I'm going to feed you. I'm going to protect you. I am going to provide providence and protection from certain death. Why? Because I made a promise. Just like I promised to protect the Gibeonites, I'm going to protect Mephibosheth. I want us to see the protection of God's covenant king. That Mephibosheth was under the curse. Yet God's covenant king protects those who are under the curse. John chapter 10, verse 11. Jesus tells his disciples. He says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Skip down to verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. And no one shall snatch them out of my Father's hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the hand of the Father. God made a promise that all of those who come to Christ, that He will lose none of them. And that though sin is putrid, and though your transgression is as plentiful as the sand is on the seashore, as the stars are in the heaven, though your sin carries with it a penalty of death, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. And Jesus said, I am the good shepherd and I lay down my life for my sheep and my sheep know my voice and my sheep know me and they come to me and all those who come to me, I will in no wise cast them out and there will be no one that will able to that will be able to snatch them from my hand because my Father has given them to me. And I want us to understand that the same covenant protection that was provided to Mephibosheth who was the son of shame, who was under the curse, that same covenant protection and even explanation more is provided to all of those who are in Christ. And though we are under the curse, though we are sinners, though our sin is putrid to God, He has said, if you come to Me, all those who come to Me, I will in no wise cast them out. See the protection of the covenant King Church. See the gore and the gruesomeness that our sin deserves. And yet God said, I love you. And I will pay that gruesome atonement for you. Because I love you. As we come into this season of Thanksgiving, it's easy to sit around the Thanksgiving table and count our blessings. And talk about the material wealth that we have and the family and the friends I want to challenge you this Thanksgiving season to think about the gore 
of atonement. And be thankful that we have a covenant king who says, I will take that so that you don't have to. Oh, what a Savior. Let's pray. God, as we as we see the protection of the covenant king, well, we know that we are Mephibosheth. We are under the curse. We deserve to die. We deserve to pay the penalty for our sin. But Jesus said, it is finished. It's paid in full. The debt that was owed by sin has been paid. And the scripture tells us in the book of Romans that all those who call upon the name of Jesus shall be saved. This morning, if that's you this morning, if you need your sin to be paid for by the covenant king, I want to invite you to come. Maybe this morning you've just been reminded of how gruesome and gory your sin is to the Lord of God, to the Lord of holiness, to the God of glory. And you need to come to this altar and just thank Him. Maybe this morning you need to grab someone and come to this altar and pray. Maybe you need to kneel right where you're at. As we get to this time of invitation, may you do business with the Lord this morning. God, we thank you for your great grace and your mercy. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.